2 Timothy chapter 1 on the subject of sin and judgment. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. And for this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard, through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Figilus and Hermogenes, May the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Amen. We undertook this series many months ago because of a dearth of teaching on the true understanding of the New Testament, and especially the God of the New Testament. Most of the time, in most places, and even most of history, especially after the time of the Apostles, this doctrine of misunderstanding the God of the New Testament and the relationship of the Old Testament with the New Testament has been dubbed based on a major heretic, a major false teacher from an area of Asia um, named Marcion. Marcion of Sinope from the territory or region of Pontus, of ancient Pontus, and the city, a coastal city, um, a maritime city called Sinope. Marcion, about A.D. 150 which would be about 50 years after the death of the last apostle, the apostle John. This man, his doctrine is actually reiterated and echoed and believed by many people. Many people have this terminal disease, this spiritual and terminal disease, and they don't realize it. Just like whenever we visit the doctor... Sometimes the doctor will tell us of something we have 
even if it's cancer, and we don't even realize it. We don't even know. Well, that's the case with most of Christianity. Most of Christianity has the terminal, eternal disease called Marcionism, named after Marcion. And what was it that he believed? Among many things, one was to say that the God of the Old Testament is a different God than the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament, he is wrathful, he's angry, he's impatient, he does not know any love, he has no mercy, no understanding. But the God of the New Testament is a God of love and mercy, compassion, grace, which was completely unknown or little known in the Old Testament period. Now in the New Testament, we have a God of love, and He loves everybody equally. He loves everybody universally. He loves any, everybody unconditionally. He loves everybody, meaning every single person. Every person from every nation in every period of time. God loves like that. And He also loves them all eternally so that everyone or most, everyone goes to heaven. Hell is not there for any human being, and even they take it to the extent that hell is not there for Satan either. There is no hell. Satan, the demons, and no people go to hell. Everybody goes to heaven. This is the distortion of the love of God. God is a God of love, 1 John 4.8. God is love, but correctly and biblically understood. So this one doctrine of Marcion is a persistent one over the millennia that people, they have this disease within them because it is a false notion of who God is. This is why we undertook the series to show that in the New Testament, God is constantly exposing and showing us our sin and the righteous judgment of God that should be inflicted upon our sin. Unless what? Unless we believe that Jesus died for us, rose from the dead, and we start to repent of sin, turn away from sin, and live a godly life, live as Christ is our Master in heaven, and we belong to Him, purchased by His blood. You are not your own You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. This is the right attitude. This is the right view we should have of the God of the New Testament. He's the same as the one in the old, same in the new, same way of salvation. Jesus is the only way of salvation. Not our good works. Not that we are better than the the next person. Nothing like that only because of the grace of Jesus Christ. So we've been highlighting aspects of sin and judgment chapter by chapter. Now we are in 2 Timothy. This letter was a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who was an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ personally appeared to him This is proven in Acts chapter 9 and Galatians chapter 1. And called him to be a witness, an apostle, a teacher, a preacher of the gospel of Christ. (coughs) In this letter of 2 Timothy, it is known as one of the prison epistles or prison letters. Prison because he's actually in a Roman prison, as he says in verse 8. His prisoner, his prisoner. He's a prisoner of Christ because he's being a witness for Christ. And the Romans and the Jews despise him and therefore throw him into prison to keep him shut up and to keep him quiet. This is his lot. Now, This letter, 2 Timothy, may be summarized by saying it is arguing that Timothy and all of us should fight the good fight of faith until the end. Fight 
the good fight of faith until the end. There will be many things he says throughout this letter, all four chapters, where he encourages Timothy to press on. Don't be demoralized. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Which word we see here, which words we see in this very first chapter. Such as in 7, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, fearfulness, being afraid. That does not come from God. And in verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. So, it would be a sin and we would get the wrathful judgment of God if we are ashamed of the gospel and we do not speak and we do not act according to what we profess. It would be a sin worthy of eternal punishment if we are ashamed of the gospel of Christ. If we do not speak up and if we do not act according to what we profess to believe. That's the basic argument in this first chapter. He's going to exhort and encourage Timothy to press on, to persevere, not to be ashamed, not to deny Christ, be a faithful young pastor until the very end of your life. Fight the good fight of faith. And then in contrast, explain as he does in 15 to 18, a couple of men who did defect, who did apostatize, who did fall away, who did reject not only Christ, but also the Apostle Paul. They did do so in contrast to a one Onesiphorus. He was faithful and not ashamed. That's the summary of the contents of chapter 1. Let's... Go back to verses 1 and 2. As was typical in letters of the time, the author of the letter puts his name first because in the roll or the scroll, opening it up, you would want to know who the sender was. Similar to the way we pick up the phone, the first thing we want to know when we hear the phone ring, who is it? And so that's why his name is first in this letter. And he says who he is. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He identifies who he is, not to boast, but to assert his position and his identity in relation to Christ and God. He's an apostle, that is an emissary or ambassador, a proclaimer of Christ Jesus, sent by Christ Jesus, who appeared to him in Acts chapter 9, as well as it explains in Galatians chapter 1. This happened by the will of God. It did not happen because Paul was having nightmares, or Paul was a daydreamer, or Paul was an inventor of religious ideas and religious fanaticism. It didn't happen for any of those reasons. He became a messenger of Christ to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior by the will of God. God originated this call. God appointed Paul. God chose Paul. God selected him to be in this role and to write many of the books of the New Testament. And what is it that he is called to preach? According to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Paul is preaching the promise of life in Christ Jesus. The promise of eternal life, everlasting life, Because it's not assured to do anyone that he will, once he uh, dies, that he will go to heaven just like that. 
an eternal existence in heaven is only possible according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. It's not automatic. There's no guarantee. What has to happen? The Word of God or Word of Christ, the Gospel of Christ, must be preached. It must be heard. It must be understood. It must be understood why Jesus Christ came into the world. He came into the world to die for our sins and to rise from the dead. And the only way to have eternal life is to believe that the sinless Christ died for my sins, not his sins. That is the promise of life in Christ Jesus. That's what he preached. That's what we should preach. That is the truth and the true gospel. Anything contrary to it would be a false gospel, would be evil, would be sin, and worthy of God's judgment. Then the recipient. The recipient is Timothy. We'll learn some things about who Timothy is. He is identified here as my beloved son. When he says that, he does not mean my beloved natural son, my beloved biological son, nor even my beloved legal son, legal son by adoption. He doesn't mean it that way. He means it spiritually. Spiritually speaking, how do we know this to be the case? My beloved son. That is, Paul preached the gospel, Timothy heard it, and Timothy believed it and was discipled by the apostle Paul. We'll see when he believed it, when he heard it, and about the discipleship. Notice, this is Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. 16, 1 to 3. Acts 16, verse 1. And he also, and he came also to Derby and to Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. The Greeks, at least at that time, the Greeks did not circumcise their sons. Timothy's father was a Greek, not the Apostle Paul literally and naturally, but an unnamed father who was a Greek. His mother was a Jewess. She was a believer. She knew the Scriptures and believed the Scriptures, but the father did not. The apostle, therefore, took him aside and started to disciple him. He wanted Timothy to go along with him on different journeys, and that's how Paul invested his life in Timothy And then Timothy eventually became a pastor and a pastor of a church in the city of Ephesus. That's why Ephesus is mentioned at the end in 2 Timothy 1.18. Ephesus was one of the major cities of the Greeks during the time of the Greeks and the Romans. He wishes... For Timothy to receive grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Only true grace, mercy, and peace come this way. Not otherwise. The world and world religions offer these same terms, grace, mercy, and peace. But the true peace, the true mercy, the true grace is only found here in Christ coming from God through Christ. The true grace of God, stand firm in it. 1 Peter 5.12 Verses 3 now, 3 to 7. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve 
with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. He is thankful to God for the work of God that is manifested in Timothy, whom he has discipled to such an extent that he is called my beloved son. I have no greater joy than this, to, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Second John, or, or Third John, verse 4. Third John 4. The apostle likewise is thankful that his faith is being developed within Timothy, and Timothy is remaining true to the faith because of God. God's work through the Apostle Paul in the life of Timothy. And who is this God? He says, Whom I serve with a clear conscience. Whom I serve with a clear conscience. His service is daily service. It's also apostolic service. It's also whenever he gathers with the people of God to serve God in worshiping with the people of God. He does so, he says, with a clear conscience. What does it take to serve God with a clear conscience? The opposite would be unclear, as the Bible elsewhere calls it a guilty conscience. It calls it an evil conscience. And that would happen only if the, the person is hypocritical. If the person is putting on a show. If the person does not have his heart truly changed by God with a sincere, genuine, pure desire to do the will of God. No matter what the circumstances and no matter who is around. Whether one person's around, nobody's around, ten people are around, a hundred people are around, it doesn't matter. He's living life before God always with a clear conscience. I do my best always before God and men to live with a clear conscience. As he says in Acts 24, 14. Not only does the apostle live that way, he says, my forefathers did. But which forefathers does he mean here? Does he mean the believing forefathers? Or does he mean the believing and unbelieving forefathers? Of course, he means only the believing forefathers. He means men like David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. He means men like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He means men like Moses and Samuel, Elijah and Elisha. Those are the forefathers he means. He does not mean Ahab, Jeroboam. He does not mean men like them. He does not mean Ishmael and Esau. He does not mean them. He does not mean Cain. He's talking about the righteous forefathers who lived their life before God, served God with a clear conscience. They were real and genuine in their faith. When does he thank God? He says, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. In his prayers night and day, he's praying without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Why? Because whatever the good fruit of God he sees in Timothy, it is brought to his attention so much that he is constantly thanking God for what God is doing in Timothy. Day and night. This is the way our prayer should be. We should have our minds thinking about the people of God, the saints of God, the church of God, the men and the women we know, and what God is doing in them, and what He's doing in them even through us. 
Because God has deigned to give us the privilege of helping others to grow in the faith. He also, verse 4, though he's a prisoner, he says in verse 4, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. He wants to see Timothy face to face. True believers who have an interest in building up one another have a desire to see others face to face. Not at a distance, but in person. And they do what is necessary to make those arrangements without excuses. In Paul's case, he has his hands tied, literally. He's in stocks and bonds in a prison. But he can't do that. But he does long to see Timothy to recall his tears and be filled with joy. It, it does not say when these tears were shed. Probably in Acts chapter 20, verse 37, where the Ephesian elders were called to the Apostle Paul and he delivered an address to them and said to them what all his faithfulness was before them and how they need to be faithful before God. And then he told them that he would not see their face anymore because he was on his way to Jerusalem not knowing what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem, whether he was going to be arrested and then executed. So the men, the elders of Ephesus, probably including Timothy, heard those words and it says that they were kissing him and shedding tears because of those words he spoke about the uncertainty about his future and whether they would see him again. They were genuinely concerned for one another. Verse 5. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. He commends uh, Timothy for a sincere faith. A sincere faith. He's no shyster. He's no hypocrite. He is sincerely, honestly believing the gospel. And then he commends Timothy's grandmother and mother. Grandmother and mother. Remember when we read Acts 16, 1-4, Luke told us that his mother was a believer, a Jewish woman and a believer. And here it's confirmed that the true faith was first found in grandmother and mother. And then he says, I am sure that it is in you as well. Because he has seen the fruit of faith, a godly life in Timothy. Turn to chapter 3, 314. 314 to 15. This is what they taught him. 314. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Timothy was taught the sacred writings, the scriptures of the Bible from his childhood, from both grandmother and mother. And that's the way it should be with us also. Is not the salvation of our children of utmost importance? If so, how are they going to be saved unless we parents teach them 
from childhood to know what the truth is. Knowing the truth of Scripture is more important by a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand times, much more than knowing sports, knowing movies, knowing mathematics, knowing science, knowing geography. Any other pursuit of life is minimal and minuscule compared to the magnitude of the salvation of our eternal souls. And the souls of our children should be foremost in our minds while they are in our care. While they are in our care, this is more important than anything else we might do for them. So let's teach them. If we don't, then we are acting contrary to these commendations here in 2 Timothy. If we act contrary, then that would be a sin. Verse 6, And for this reason, chapter 1, verse 6, And for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. In 1 Timothy 4.14, that's when he was installed to the office of pastor. There was a body of elders, the presbytery, that laid hands on him. And he received the gift of God in this ministry. It's likely a ministerial gift he means here. Which he says, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God. That would be necessary to say, if there was a possibility, if there was a danger in letting it go dormant letting it be inactive, letting it be unused, which would be a shame. A gift, the gift of God for ministry is not given for it to be unused, but for it to be used for the benefit of others in the church. Whatever the gift may be, ministerial gift, we ought to be active in making sure we employ it for the benefit of of others. It will encourage others, but it will also encourage us. Verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. God does not give us fearfulness, timidity. He does not make us people who are afraid of men and afraid of the devil. We should not be afraid of men and afraid of the devil. That should not be the case at all. We should not even be afraid of eternal judgment. If we have a true and sincere faith in Christ, then he removes it. Perfect love casts out Fear. 1 John 4, 18. We need to have this perfect love knowing that God truly does love us. He has truly redeemed us. Our soul is in His hand and that whatever men might do, no worries. Whatever men might do, we should not be afraid. We should always just do what is right knowing that if we are afraid, it's not coming from God. It's coming from the world the flesh, and the devil. Not God. He says, God has not given us a spirit of timidity. Instead, what has God given? Power, love, and discipline. Power. The power of the Holy Spirit. You shall receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. The power of the Holy Spirit. Love. God has given us love. We love because He first loved us. God first loved us, and then we love Him, and we love one another, and fulfill the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love 
our neighbor as ourselves. And thirdly, God has granted or given to us discipline. Discipline. Not a lack of discipline, not incontinence, not dissipation, not anything that lacks self-control. Whenever God is involved in gifting us and forming us, conforming us, transforming us, He is doing it with discipline. And discipline is against the flesh. The flesh would like laxity. The flesh would like lawlessness. The flesh would like licentiousness. But God has not given us that spirit. He's given us a spirit of discipline. We know the difference between right and wrong, and we pursue what's right. We know the difference between the narrow path and the broad path, and we choose the narrow path that leads to life, as Jesus taught. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Keeping these in mind, now in 8 to 14, or 8 to 12, 8 to 12, he exhorts Timothy not to be ashamed, but to suffer with Paul for the sake of the gospel of Christ. Verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Why is it? that men, Christian men, Christian pastors, why is it that they do not tell the truth in the pulpit or in private? Why is it that they do not tell the truth? Because they are ashamed of the Lord and the people of the Lord. They are ashamed. This is what the Word says right here, 2 Timothy 1, 8. In 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. No need to be ashamed when we handle the word of truth. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 1.16 There should be no shame in the gospel because in the gospel, the word we preach from the Bible, it has the power to save those who hear. Not the words of men, not fiction, not mythology, not fairy tales, nothing else does, not even sweet music or proper lighting or the proper temperature in the room. Nothing incidental is that which saves us, but it is the gospel. That's why he's saying, don't be ashamed of it. You must believe it and then boldly proclaim it. Whoever is ashamed of me in this sinful and adulterous generation. The Son of Man will be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. If we are ashamed of Christ, He will be ashamed of us when He returns. That was Mark 8, 38. 1 John 2, 28. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. If we are ashamed of Him now, we're going to be ashamed because He's going to shame us when He returns. It would be a, a shame and a sin to be ashamed of Him now. So to avoid that judgment to come, we must rectify it now. Don't be ashamed of Christ and don't be ashamed of the people of Christ. But instead, do what? Join with me in suffering 
for the gospel according to the power of God. Join those who are suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. God will give power to deliver. God will give power to give us victory over the world. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. 1 John 5, verse 4. We are protected by the power of God through faith. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter <clears throat> chapter 1 and verses, verse 5. Protected by the power of God through faith. Further, <clears throat> this gospel, what has it done? It says in verse 9, Who has saved us? The power of God has saved us. It says it as past tense. Has saved us. Not will save us, which is true, but has saved us. This is showing that it is possible to know, to have assurance, to have comfort, to have the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Romans 8.17 It shows that these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of in the name of the Son of God, in order that you might know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5, 13. Here too, this assurance, if we really and truly believe, we have the peace of God, the assurance of God, to know we are saved. How so? How did it happen? It says, And called us with a holy calling. God called us to salvation <coughs> through a holy calling. The holy God called us to be holy ourselves. The holy God called us to be holy ourselves. 1 Peter 1.16 Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the holy calling. It's also a holy calling and an effective calling in that whoever God wants to save will be saved. It's guaranteed. It's assured. No one will slip through the cracks. Romans 8. Romans 8, 28 to 30. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. There's the calling. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom He predestined, these He also called, and whom He called... These he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. The ones who are called are justified, that is, declared righteous in Christ, not because of their own goodness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. And if we are justified, we are guaranteed to be glorified. That is, become immortal, when the return of Christ occurs and be with Him forever in immortality. This happens <clears throat> according to 2 Timothy 1.9 not according to our works. Not according to our works. Why? Because our works produce death. Ephesians 2.1 You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Our works produce death, so our goodness 
can never be offered to God as a way to plead with God or a way to bargain with God that we might be saved. It doesn't happen by our good works. By grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. We aren't saved by good works. We're only saved by the work of Christ. Not ours, but His. Do we deserve it? He further reiterates that we do not. It happens according to His own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. It has nothing to do with what's good in us, but what is good in the will of God, in the purpose of God. It says, His own purpose and grace, which was granted us or gifted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, before the foundation of the world, before time and matter began, before the world existed, God determined, He predetermined by His own purpose and grace to grant it to us, to grant this salvation to us in Christ Jesus. Therefore, it has nothing to do with our goodness. We are not good. But we are evil naturally and dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1 But in this gospel, how do we see it manifested? Verse 10. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It was preordained in Christ from all eternity, but in time... At a point in history, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world. The Word was God, John 1.1, and then John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When He came into the world, He came into the world to live a perfect life, to die, to be buried, to be raised from the dead, and to be the firstborn of the dead. Colossians 1.18 He came to be the first fruits of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 The first fruits, or the firstborn from the dead. When He rose from the dead, three days after He was crucified and buried, when He rose from the dead, He showed that He abolished death, He showed that He brought life. He showed that He brought immortality. He showed it all. That's what He means by to light. He brought it, manifested it, displayed it. That's why He appeared to His disciples, over 500 brethren even, at at one time, in order to show that He was raised, He was glorified, He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. So that they all, hundreds of people at least, would see and know that redemption has been accomplished in Christ. So if we have evidence, we have historicity, we have eyewitnesses, we have factuality, we have certainty, we have veracity, we have all these things, why should we be ashamed if it has benefited us by saving us? By the grace of God. We shouldn't be ashamed of any of this. In fact, we should be proclaimers of it. Verse 11. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. The apostle was appointed to these positions or offices of preacher, apostle, and teacher. Many of us will never hold these offices. It's impossible for us to hold the office of apostle, for example. However, these other positions are 
either formally or informally ours. There are qualifications, such as in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, for qualified men to fulfill these positions of preacher and teacher. But all of us, in one way or another, every Christian is a preacher and a teacher, such as we saw in verse 5, Lois and Eunice, grandmother and mother, were preachers and teachers to Timothy, informally and in the family. They were, and they should be. It should be our natural inclination in Christ to proclaim what truths we know. When we do not, and when we muzzle the mouth, we are guilty of withholding the truth from others. And there will be blood on our hands. That's why the Apostle said, Acts 20, 26-27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God, and I am innocent of the blood of all. I am innocent of the blood of all. Either they will be held guilty, or we will be held guilty, if we do not tell them the truth, to believe in Christ and repent of their sins. Verse 12, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. That day is the day of judgment. That day he is ready. For that day he is ready. He says, Since all these things are true, for this reason... I also suffer these things. If these things are not true, and we are suffering for these things, are we not crazy? Are we not out of our minds? Are we not foolish? Is this this not a silly and even a dangerous undertaking? But if it is true, then we should be suffering. If it's true, we should be suffering and not be ashamed. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12 That's speaking of the certainty of persecution for those who are desiring to live godly in Christ Jesus. And... On what basis does he have this certainty? Based on who he is believing. He is believing in God through Christ. And what is it that God has said in Christ? What is it that God has done in Christ that is worthy of rejection, worthy of ridicule, worthy of unbelief? Nothing. In fact, it convinces him that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. His soul is entrusted to God. And God, he knows, is able to guard it, able to protect it, able to make sure that he passes safely into his heavenly kingdom. The Lord will deliver me 2 Timothy 4.18 The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. He knows God's power and ability to do so. John 10. John 10.27-30 John 10.27 My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father, we are one. The power of God and the power of Christ are at work to protect us, to guard us when our souls 
are in their hands. In return, what should we do? Well, what does he tell Timothy to do? Verse 13. 2 Timothy 1.13 Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Retain the standard of sound words. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, he says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, so forth. Verses 3 and 4. Why is this necessary to retain the standard of sound words? Because it is very, very easy because of the world, the flesh, and the devil to succumb to compromise, to succumb to infiltration, to succumb to goats coming among the sheep, and even ravenous wolves coming in sheep's clothing among the sheep. It's very easy to put your guard down. But he's saying don't do that. He's saying retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. Do not doubt the Apostle Paul. Paul is correct because he writes the word of God. And let God be found true, though every man a liar. Romans 3, 4. Now, these sound words are in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Not elsewhere. Faith and love, true faith and true love are found in Christ Jesus. Not in any other religion. No matter how noble it presents itself, no matter how open-minded it presents itself, don't believe it. Only the true faith and love are in Christ Jesus. And then 14, a further, it's a reiteration of verse 13. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. The treasure entrusted to us is the gospel itself, is the word of Christ itself. It is the truth of God itself. What we know to be true in the Word of God, in the Bible, that is the treasure that God has entrusted to us. If we are faithful, if we are responsible, we will guard it. Guard it in the face of opposition. 1 Timothy 6.20-21 1 Timothy 6.20 O Timothy, Guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Some, he says, have falsely called their doctrine, their gospel, saying it's a Christian gospel, they have called it knowledge, but it's false knowledge, not true knowledge. False teachers use biblical words with unbiblical meanings. They'll say Jesus, but they don't mean the biblical Jesus. They'll say Spirit, but they don't mean the biblical Holy Spirit. They'll say Gospel, but they don't mean the biblical Gospel. They'll say knowledge, but they don't mean the true biblical knowledge. They say love, but they don't have genuine love. They'll say grace, but they don't have the true grace of God. They'll use many biblical words with unbiblical meaning. But what's our duty? To guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. He's using in 14 a word that is typically used of soldiers. He picks up on that in chapter 2. Chapter 2, 3, and 4. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier 
of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Soldiers are obligated to guard whatever has been assigned to them. If they are not good soldiers, they will sleep on the job. They will be lazy. They will even strike a deal with the enemy and betray their own country. They'll be treacherous and treasonous. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We know what's right, we know what's true, and with the power of the Holy Spirit, we should guard the gospel. 15, 15 to 18. Two men, and the rest unnamed, who deserted the Apostle Paul, and one man who did not. To, or chapter 1, verse 15. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Figilus and Hermogenes. All who are in Asia turned away from me. They found, oh, Paul, your gospel is too hard. Paul, your gospel is too strict. Paul, your gospel is too difficult. Paul, your gospel is causing you to be persecuted. Paul, you're in prison. I don't want to go to prison. That's how people think. So what do they do? They desert the faithful. And he says, all who are in Asia turned away from me. When he says Asia, he's not using the word as we do these days in the United States. Asia or Asian doesn't mean Chinese or Japanese or Korean peoples, though it includes them. It had to do with Western Asia, also called Asia Minor, in the area around the Mediterranean Sea, north of it and east of it. In that region, that was first called Asia, and then the rest of the whole, whole continent then was dubbed Asia. And at the time, he's talking about that western portion of Asia called Asia Minor. So in that region around the Mediterranean Sea and north of it, there, um, not south of it, north of it and east and northeast of it, in that area is Asia. He's saying the gospel spread there and there were so many people for a while they were following me, they were listening to me and they were saying, hey, brother Paul, Come over here. We want to hear you preach. We want to hear what you have to say. We love you, brother. But what happened when things became difficult and they saw that the Apostle Paul was arrested and thrown into prison for preaching the truth? They turned away from him. They defected. They abandoned him in his greatest moments of need. And perhaps these were the leaders. That's why they are named. And we notice that the Apostle names names. The Apostle names names. When we refuse to name names, we sin against God. Because if a disease is out there, it does not help anybody to be nebulous about it, ambiguous about it, to be unclear about it. You cannot say, well, there's a, there's a certain disease out there. I just wanted you to know. Have a good day. How does that help anybody? It doesn't help anybody. If there is poison in a certain product, don't we want to hear from the news and from the corporations, whichever ones uh, made a mistake? Don't we need to hear from them? It is this product. Th these are the dates of manufacture. These are the outlets. These are the retailers who have it and this is what you need to do with it, they get very specific so that no one consumes that which contains poison. And that's the same with the Apostle. The Apostle does it here. He does it in every chapter. 2.17, he mentions two other poisonous men, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Chapter 3, verse 8, Jonas and Jamris. In chapter 4, 4.10, Demas, 4.14, Alexander the coppersmith. He names names so that we know who we're talking about and not misunderstand and then also avoid and warn others to avoid the same men. 
but not the case with Onesiphorus. He also names men to commend. Verse 16, May the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Onesiphorus, when the Apostle Paul was imprisoned, he was not ashamed to show up at the prison and say to the guards, Sirs, I would like to see Paul, Saul of Tarsus. I would like to see him. I have something to give to him. What would happen if the guards snitched on Onesiphorus? Or if others see him walking to the prison and say, Oh, Onesiphorus, you are with Paul. Arrest him too. He believes just like Paul. That would have been the danger, right? And yet he's saying, Onesiphorus often refreshed me. Onesiphorus was not ashamed of my chains. He eagerly searched for me and found me. Isn't that the opposite of the parents of the blind man who was healed by Christ in John 9? What did they say when they were interrogated and they were afraid that they would be thrown out of the synagogues? uh, Out of the synagogue. What did they say to the Pharisees? They said, ask him. He's of age. Go ask him. Ask him um, um, how he was healed. Go ask him. Don't ask me about it. Go ask him. Why? Because they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. They avoided telling the truth and avoided going in the direction of the truth. They were evasive because they were fearful, sinfully fearful. Hebrews 10, 10, 32. Hebrews 10, 32 to 35 encourages us to do the same. Hebrews 10.32 But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Hebrews 13, 3. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Will we have this kind of courage? He's encouraging Timothy to maintain it and to strengthen it. He identifies Onesiphorus as having it. Will we maintain and build up our courage and not be ashamed of the gospel? Or will we be like all who are in Asia who turned away? Let's be faithful. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.